pray for me because I'm using a different Bible. And I used to use it years ago, but stopped and it doesn't feel right. Like when I'm flipping, it seems like nothing's in the right spot. So we'll see. We'll see how this works. But Romans 2. Um, for years and years and years now, I have called Romans the gospel according to Paul. Yeah. The gospel according to Paul. Because basically, if you go throughout, what happens is Paul is explaining the gospel to a mixed crowd, both Christians and Jews, but he's giving it in such a way that they can understand it and retell it. So, and interestingly enough, um, well, I was like, it's interesting with the whole, the gospel according to Paul, because I've been saying it for years, I even did a 16-part series at another church, uh, Bible studies, and all of a sudden, this last, I've just been alerted to the fact that John MacArthur released a book called The Gospel According to Paul about Romans. And I am like, man, that was my title. I mean, figures a, a Calvinist would go ahead and steal my title. Like that was, I was really happy about that. And even the, even the image on the book kind of looks like the image I was using online when I was, it's like, I really think somebody might have been like, when they were in a brainstorming session, somebody might have actually seen it and been like, hey, what about the gospel according to Paul? And John MacArthur is like, yep, yep, sounds good. I'll take credit for that. But anyways, the point being is that if you look at Romans, you can almost follow the first 12 chapters. They almost follow the 12-step uh, program for AA and stuff. Like the first one is you have to acknowledge that your life is out of control and that you can't handle it. Well, that's what Paul does. He goes to the first chapter and explains the fact that sin is the problem. Whether it's, it doesn't matter what it is, alcohol or sin's the problem. I mean, even when you have an alcohol problem, you got a sin problem, really, because it's causing you to do things that, that you wouldn't do in your right mind half the time. And so it's a sin problem. It really is. So basically, the first chapter, you have to acknowledge that there is a problem. What is it? Sin. We're inherently sinful. Second chapter is, now you have to acknowledge that there is someone outside of yourself that can fix it. So this, that's what the second chapter goes into, and he explains this. And he explains it in such a way that both Christians and Jewish people can both get it. So that he doesn't have to go through the whole history of the whole nation of Israel so the Christians can get it. And Roman Christians, particularly, who probably don't know the whole story and really don't care to know the whole story. And actual Jewish people who probably, if they were in-depth in their Bible, it made sense to them and they were converting. So he goes for the first, second, and even at the third telegraphing, at the third chapter is where he suddenly, you have to make yourself ready to give yourself over to that to the higher power, to God. So again, it follows pretty, pretty close. I mean, if you look at the 12 steps and read it, you can get pretty much a sub- you know, like a subtitle for each of the chapters in Romans. So, basically, you know, when setting up and using everybody, Jews, and using and saying everybody's sinful, everybody's inherently sinful, and explains, you know, in the first, that, that we have to admit this. We can't say that, even if you say there's, a, like, God had a chosen people in the Jewish people, 
they still had to believe in God. Just being chosen was not enough. They had to believe in God. And if anybody does, well, yeah, but chosen people, elected people, set aside, whatever, means that God elected these people. Yeah, but what did he elect them for? Because God knowing all things, he could very easily have said, well, I know these people are going to do something bad, so let me use them as a, as a, as a bad example of what not to do. And if anybody wants to argue about whether or not Jewish people will, will just be by being born Hebrew or whatever, can you be, are you automatically saved? Go look at Samuel's children. It, they were evil in the sight of God. And God says when they died, they went down. They're not in heaven. Go ahead and look at it, Absalom, David's son. Same thing. David cried over Absalom when he died because he knew he wasn't going up. He knew where he was going. And that was just, even though his own son wanted to kill him, he was, he, he was sad that such a thing would happen. So, just being elected or chosen by God doesn't mean you're saved. It just means you're elected to do something. You're elected to do something. Again, whether that's be a good example, bad example, being elected. So, we're going to look at uh, Romans chapter 2. And one of the crazy things is, and we get to the end of the chapter, which we're going to go through pretty quick, but when we get to the end of the chapter, it spurs on a debate amongst Baptists, that even Southern Baptists, to this day, in the convention, you'll have both sides. You have dispensationalists, and you have replacement theology. The dispensationalist basically believes that there's God got people saved in different ways at different times in history. Meaning there's now some there's dispensational, there's what's called a hyper, which means that like, okay, I'll give you the easy one. That is Adam through no through Noah was one form of you just had to believe in God. Noah through Moses, you had to follow the Noah, what's called the Noahide laws, meaning when he got off the ark, God said you had to believe in me, you had to treat people well, you had to gave like five laws you had to do. If you did those, that's how you got saved. From Moses until Christ, you had the Mosaic law, and that's another dispensation. So it just keeps changing. And then from Christ on, it keeps, it, it, it's, we're in the church age. The issue with that is that, and it's true, dispensation, the word dispensation is in the Bible. You can go read it. It's in there like, well, seven times? Seven times in there, it's dispensation. The problem is, is dispensation, if you were to say it, it's, it's like administration or stewardship, being literally being in charge of, the word comes from being in charge of one person's finances for them. If they're not yours, you're not really responsible, but you're taking over their bit for them. And Paul uses it. And the reason why Paul uses it is because he says that God saw it fit to put me into this dispensation until the coming of Christ, meaning that he believed that God had entrusted him to carry the gospel to people until he passed on or whatever the case may be. Just meaning that he was entrusted with a ministry, a specific ministry. The issue with replacement theology, so if I'm telegraphing it, I'm not a huge fan of dispensationalism. 
because it says God judges people different based upon when they were born and died and all these things. I'm not a fan of that. I'm really not. Even though I grew up in a church that was dispensational, it just there's problems with it. There's just problems with saying God kind of randomly changes the goalpost and moves the goalpost here and there. I would like to say that through the reading of the scripture, you get a pretty clear goal, if you, especially Paul, that in the Old Testament, people had to believe in God, and by, by believing in God, they're being saved by what Christ would do on the cross. And everyone after Christ's death is being saved because of what Christ yeah. did do yeah. on the cross. Yeah. However, the problem with this with replacement theology is that it's not biblical. Because replacement theology says we Christians replaced the Jewish people as God's chosen nation. We, they're done with, they're out, they're out of favor. The problem is, is we have this little thing called the book of Revelation. And we have this apostle called Paul, who the very person they're saying, but he invented the discipline. He still talks about the fact that, that Israel is still God. Jew, the Jewish people are still God's chosen nation. They're just in rebellion right now. There, it, is, it is Hosea. Hosea with his wife who left him and went out and was sleeping around. It is the ultimate fulfillment of, that, of Hosea. So he's, Jesus, God still loves the Jewish people. He still loves the Jewish people. So what that means is the reason why people, great preachers of God, in the Southern Baptist Convention either, even, disagree on one subject. Why? Because both things are kind of in the Bible. And they're saying it has to be this or it has to be that. When if you look at it, it's pretty clear. God has always saved people through faith in him. But the only difference is the Jewish people went off the reservation. They've left. And God will eventually make sure things happen to bring them back. So he's still, they're still favored. He still loves Judah. Judah is still his, his bride, God's bride. But in the meantime, while they're not being faithful, the church is basically the only representation of God currently on the earth. So it's kind of both. We are currently, the church is kind of the representation, but at the same time, revelation is what revelation is. It's that the ultimate goal. So we're going to see as we read through here, Paul is going to make it very clear that what he's doing is he's trying to make it understand that everybody, whether Jew or Gentile or anything, we all have to play by the same rules, and that is we all have to see ourselves for who we are, and we all need a Savior. So, let's start in the first verse of the second chapter, and it says, well, let's start in the last verse because it says, therefore, and anytime there's a therefore, that means there's something before it. We'll start in... Uh, first one in the 32nd verse it says, Knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judges, for wherein thou judges another, thou condemneth thyself, for thou that judgeth doest the same thing. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them that commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, 
that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of the goodness of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering? For knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that works good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. That is a very important thing because that's where from the beginning until now, if you believe in God, the true living God, and you do not, you don't believe in any idols, you believe in a true living God, the one that the Israelites followed, you, you were saved in the Old Testament and the New Testament, literally without the works of the law, even in the Old Testament. And just because I'm the type of person who loves to do this sort of thing, let's jump to 2 Kings 5. 2 Kings 5. And we're going to learn about a guy named Naaman who was a captain of the, it, it says in the captain of the king of Syria, with a great man with his master, and honorable because of by him the Lord has given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, in valor, but was a leper. So there was a man that would work for the king. He had worked in the temple, and he was a great man. Even so much they're saying he was a good person to where even God saw him as being a good good person, and actually prospered him. So when God was prospering Naaman, even though he was a Syrian, working in the administration of Syria, he went ahead and God was prospering because of his good works. Now the problem was is he became a leper. When you become a leper, you have to be essentially kicked out because back then they weren't sure what it was, if it was a contagious version or not, because there are about five different diseases all called leprosy. And so he has an issue with the leprosy. Well, so then he goes ahead and he says, and the Syrians, starting the second verse, says, and the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto his, her mistress, would God my Lord... It, would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that in that it is in Syria or Samaria, for he would recover from his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. First of all, I love that, that thus and thus 
is what they said. <laughs> it's like the yada, yada, yada thing. Yada, yada, yada is what the maid said. Oh, and by the way, she said you could clear your leprosy up by going to this guy. I mean, I just love that. And thus and thus. It doesn't repeat it. It's just and thus and thus is what he said. But I love it. So then, so get this. He said that to the king before Naaman even, he didn't, and in the, 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 the person who was keeping after the maid, and the king of Syria said, go, go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have wherewith sent Naaman, my servant, to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeks a quarrel against me. So the king thinks that he's trying to trick him for some reason. He thinks he's trying to trick him, and he's angry about this, going, oh, this guy is going to try and do this, and so he has a reason to attack us when it doesn't work. Needless to say, I'm not going to go through the whole thing because it's a pretty long episode, but basically what happens is Elijah uh, heard about, hears about this, Elisha hears about this, and goes, well, send them to me. And to, you know, why do you tear your clothes, king? And he said, because they're trying to trick me. And he explained to him. He goes, that's okay. He goes, just tell Naaman to go dip himself seven times in the Jordan River and he'll be clean. Yeah. Well, Naaman goes, well, can I see him? Basically, he's like, no, just go dip yourself seven times yeah. in the Jordan. Well, Naaman thinks he's blowing him off and thinks he's being just like, ah, just whatever type of thing. So he gets mad because he's saying, listen, there are amazing rivers in Syria that have more water than all the water of Israel put together. Why can't I dip in one of those? And basically, his servant says to him, well, what, what are you going to lose if you just dip yourself in the Jordan? So Naaman goes, dips himself seven times, and comes out. And not only is his, his leprosy restored, his skin, it say, uses the term, his skin was like a baby's yeah. skin, meaning it was supple and it was like perfect and this is a warrior, so clearly he probably had like rough skin and had issues going on. So then he goes ahead and he comes back and he tells Elisha that he wants to, you know, give him money. And Elisha's like, no, I don't want your money. But he says, so here, we're going to start pick up in the 15th verse. It says, and he returned to the man of God and he and all his company came and stood before him. And he said, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Amen. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, shall there no, not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth, of dirt. For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardoned thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Ramon, and that to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, that I bow myself to the house of Ramon, when I bow down myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord will pardon thy servant in this thing. And he said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed 
from him a little while. Now, it's kind of an interesting thing because they don't tell us what exactly he's going to do with the dirt. Like, But basically, he so his job was to take the king into the temple of, of Ramon, it's also known as Ramon, and they bowed down. And he said, listen, I want God to know by this dirt. So we don't know what the dirt can. Is he putting it in his pockets? Is he sprinkling it? Who knows what it is? But he's saying this dirt here in Israel is God's dirt, meaning he's acknowledging the supremacy of the Jewish people of Israel, saying this dirt is God's dirt here. Then he's saying, just give it to me so I can go. They don't tell us why, but then he says his job is to take a pagan king into the temple and keep him from falling over when he bows down to pray and worship a pagan god. And he says, may God pardon thy servant when it does this because I'm not personally worshiping this God. It's just my job. And what does Elisha say? Because Elisha's talking on behalf of God here. What does he say? Go in peace. Do it. That's good. So what did we just witness? Naaman was saved. Naaman got saved. And not only that, he was working in the service of a pagan king and God and temple. And God still was like, as long as you're believing in the one true God, do it. He never told him to follow any Sabbath laws. He never told him to follow dietary laws. He never thought nothing at all. It already said in the beginning that God already acknowledged that he, even as a pagan, was living a good life. He was a good, considered a good man among the people. So God was just like, well, if you're already doing a good job, just keep on going. Do what you do. But at the same time, this shows us both the concept that, that Israel is still important to God. Because at this time, we see that literally the dirt itself was considered God's dirt. That's God's dirt. That's not ours. That's not there. That's God's. So God would not change his mind if he cared enough to include stuff like this in the Bible. It's in there for a reason. Why? So we can see it and know how it works. It's for a reason. But at the same time, we see that how he says it goes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. To the Jew for go, well, why is that? Because it was entrusted to the Jews first. And then if they wanted to be saved, the rest of the world had to come and find out about God, the living God. So that's why it's to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It's not that one's more superior to the other. It's that that's how just God entrusted the law to one person, the oracles, the prophets. However, if that's how it worked in the Old Testament, why isn't that the way that it works today? It is. That's exactly what we say today. Right where you're at, if you believe in God, confess and try to do better. That's exactly what we preach. That's the gospel. And that's what happened in all the way back in Elisha's time, a thousand years before Christ. So clearly, in reading, nothing's changed. The way you get saved has always been through faith in the one living God. And now the only difference is it had been it was looking forward to the cross. And today it's looking back to the cross. But anybody who tells you that Israel is not important, you can dismiss them because they're not reading their Bible. Because you do not get that from this Bible. So we're going to continue. And it says, 
starting in 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. For as many have sinned without the law, shall also perish without law. And as many have sinned in the law, shall be judged by the law. See, that's the point. Naaman wasn't a part of the people who had the law, so he couldn't follow them. The only thing he knew was that the one true living God of Israel was true. But he couldn't live by the law because he didn't have the law. But the people who had the law, well, you're expected. Matter of fact, the Jewish people, even to this day, will say, being Jewish, being the chosen one, is not really as much a blessing as it is kind of a curse. It, it singled them out for hatred, and it gave a burden of them to carry on the traditions and in, in the law and keep these things. And so we're going to continue on in the 13th verse. It says, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, not having the law, are a law unto themselves. Again, meaning... If they're doing good, even in their pagan society, God will God knows their heart. 15. Which show the works of the law written in their heart, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thought, and their thoughts that meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. Again, now that's still saying that they're either going to accuse, meaning make you feel bad and change, or you're going to come up with an excuse for why you're doing this evil thing. And, and try to get out of it. 16. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So this is why it's the gospel of Paul. Because Paul's saying this. This is what I'm saying. That in the end, Jesus Christ you will judge. That's his gospel. 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew and retest in the law and makest thy boast of God and knowest his will and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou, that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hath the form of knowledge and of the truth and the law. Now he, he turns it. Now he's going to turn it on the Jewish people, because now he's changing the Jewish people and saying, but the Jewish people do have the law. However, in 21, he says, Thou, therefore, which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, doth thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, doth thou commit adultery? Thou that abhor idols, doth thou commit sacrilege? Thou that maketh thy boast of the law, Thou breakest the law, dishonoreth thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. This is an allusion to Isaiah 52, where it says that the people in the surrounding areas were mocking God because they were looking at how the Israelites were living at the time, and they were going, these people claim they believe in a God, and yet they're doing this? Ha! Huh. We live a better life, and they claim we are heathens. Mm -hmm. So he's saying that that's the reason why God's anger was kindled against them. That's the reason why it's a problem. It's because you can boast and say, oh, we're the chosen one. We're the chosen. chosen for what? Chosen to be an example. And when you're chosen to be an example, that means that God not only lifts you up, 
but he gives you a whooping when you need it. Amen. God is a, a true Amen. father. He gives you a whooping when you really Amen. need it. And every one of us, if you've never had a whooping, you better watch, check your salvation because he gives everyone a whooping once in a while. The, the difference is, though, again, is that remember, he's, 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 he just built up the Jewish people and, the, and the, those who were not Jews by saying that both of you are important, both of you are important. But the reason why he's going to knock the Jewish people down, though, is because he wants to make Paul's whole point, though, is that the law doesn't save you. The reason why he's saying, because he's saying, but you boast in having the law, but you're not even doing it. So if the law saves you, then you're not saved because you're not even doing the law. Just because it was entrusted to you doesn't mean you're going to heaven. If you're saying you're being saved by the law, then you have to do it. But again, this is why I say it follows the, two, the, the 12 steps, because the second thing is you have to acknowledge that there is something greater than yourself. Because no matter what you do, we're always going to do hypocritical things. We're always going to fail. We're always going to, there's going to be something. Even when you think you're doing really good, let a little toddler or something say something, because they will point out whatever the bad thing is. Amen. They'll just tell you, straight to your, just loses it, and you go, oh man, that was just as I got puffed up, that little kid went ahead and just poked my balloon. So we're going to continue, and we're going to start with back with 24, because we get, just get ourselves a running start for the rest of the chapter. It says, For that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. For circumcision verily profits if thou keeps the law. But if thou is a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the circumcision, uncircumcision, keep the righteousness of the law, shall not their uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And he's saying circumcision is another way. In the Jewish mindset, that was how they used the term dirty. Like if we would say whatever, a dirty blank, you know, name a, name a third world country. That's their way of saying a dirty whatever. And he's saying, well, yeah, but if the people who are dirty whatever are keeping the law, and they don't even have it entrusted to them, don't you think God would count that to them as being a good thing? So again, he's he's using that as saying, you know, no matter what you try to, even if you say, well, yeah, but we don't follow the law, but at least we're circumcised. And we've done that part of it. That's another thing to just point out is that I've had people argue, because people argue infant baptism using a circumcision. They'll say, well, yeah, but baptism is the new circumcision, and circumcision used to be done for children, little babies. The problem with that is, is that God made the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, when Abraham was in his 70s. He said, covenant's done, sealed, locked, signed, you count on it. And then it's not until he's in 99 years old that he actually says, you know what, to Abraham, and I honestly think it was done because of Abraham's disobedience. Abraham had, got, had, had Ishmael when he was told to wait. He was doing all kinds of issues. He was lied to the king of Egypt. He lied to several people. He was not doing what he was supposed to do. And I think God said, listen, even though you're faithful at times, I think I need to test you in a way that will make you understand that I mean business. And so God added a step to see if you trust me, you'll do it. So he added circumcision more for the benefit, not to be some sort of curse, not to be some sort of the benefit of Abraham to realize that, yeah, I do believe in God. Because it's only when you're faced with doing something that you actually make the step. Because you could say, oh, I believe in God, I believe in God, I believe in God. 
And now all of a sudden you're sitting here at a crossroads. You have to actually decide, do I do the thing or do I skip it? Well, when you, you go ahead and skip and do what God wants you to do, now you actually can say, yeah, in my heart, what I've been saying in my brain, I believe it in my heart. It does, the, act, the, the, the actions and the works itself don't count for salvation. But for you personally, they're a good indicator of what you really believe. That's, again, this morning when I was talking about Rich Mullins, one of the things Rich Mullins did was even when he was in doubt, he would say the words and repeat the words until he believed it. He would say, I believe God is good. I believe God is righteous. I believe it. Even when he felt like all these things weren't true at the time, keep saying it until he believed it. You change your, be willing to change yourself. So, starting again in 27, it says, And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision doth transgress the law. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And those two verses are important because those are where people will bring you when they want to do the replacement. They'll say, yeah, but he's not a Jew who is one outwardly. It's the one who believes in Christ. But that's been the case all along. Just because today we're saying that the people who actually believe God are the ones who are counted as the seeds of Abraham. That's the way it's always been. But you've got to distinguish between the kingdom language of saying in heaven we're considered as, as seeds of Abraham versus the actual physical. And again, that's in third, just a peek at that. In third, the first verse of the third chapter says, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? And Paul does say, he goes, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. So he's still saying that in a way, God did bless the Jews because he gave them the law. He gave them. He, he, they're the ones who were entrusted these things. So if anybody should be able to be saved, should know the truth, it should be the Jewish people. They might be disobeying, they might be pulling against it, but they are... They, they, it is, you know, I mean, it, if God went to you and said, here, here's this thing, now disseminated amongst other people, well, it is really great because God actually went to you. However, at the same time, it is a burden because God said disseminate. And so now it's your job to, to take it to the people, take it to the masses. So again, dispensationalism, placement theology, both are kind of yes. Both are kind of no, but at the same time, none of that matters because if you're a reader of the Bible from the beginning to the end, what is salvation? It's faith in the one true living God. And today we are lucky enough to have Christ who is the very embodiment of of God who can show us how to live a better life. But the Jewish people are still important because there's still an end times to come. However, we as the church, we are the ambassadors for the moment. 
Yeah. And we need to take that seriously. Yeah. So, dispensation, placement theology, yes and no. All right, say for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time. I thank you for the people who have come out. Hopefully that what has been said, just if there's any question, if there's anything that people would bring up, if you're out in the world and somebody brings something, hopefully it'll be easier to, to remember and to, to understand what you believe so that you can feel firm and we can all feel secure in our faith that no matter what the case, you are righteous, you save, and we can trust what you have written in this Bible. May you watch everyone as we go out, and may you take particular care and, and just look after Kathy with her, with her shoulder, and that if, if it be your will, that you can help her to get over that, to fill it, to to mend what's broken. May you bro mend the brokenness in all of us and anything that we have spoken or unspoken. People that we know, people we haven't even met yet, that you'll be able to help mend us both physically and spiritually. Bless for all these things in your holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.